Hi everyone, today is a special day for me. This is my 100th podcast in my 25th year doing GMO activism and I decided I should do something special and I just decided today to call up my very dear friend Deborah Poneman and say, Deborah, ask me some questions about the last 25 years. And I don't want to think about it in advance. I want it to be just a conversation that I want to share. So I want to share that with you all and turn it over to you, Deborah, so that you can start the process and we can get going. All right. First of all, I want to start out by saying congratulations. I mean, you know, like a hundredth edition of your podcast, Live Healthy, Be Well. I mean, that's like a big deal in 25 years of activism, which I'm going to ask you about, needless to say. And I have to say, in all sincerity, I've known you for almost 40 years or maybe even more than 40 years. Yeah. And um, I am so proud to be your friend. I really am because so many people, you know, they talk about fighting things like climate change or racism or the destruction of our food supply. But, you know, you didn't just talk, you know, you took action. It actually makes me emotional because you not only took action, but you took big action to educate people on what's really happening with the introduction of GMOs and so much more. I mean, speaking and doing interviews all over the world and writing books and making films and exposing cover-ups by governments and biotech corporations. But more than that, it's being um, fearless about it, like fearlessly outspoken. I think that's why uh, you're my hero, you know, Miss Niceness pattern. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's like you just are fearless about what you believe in. And even with the waiters at the restaurants when we go out to dinner. <laughs> well, look, they, need, they need an education, too, about what to serve that's healthy. <laughs> right. And I have to tell you, warning, when you go out with Jeffrey, he will question the wait person. <laughs> And um, so happy birthday, happy birthday, happy anniversary and 25 years. And, um, you know, and and 25 years ago is more, it's before most people even knew the term GMO. 25 years ago, I'd be hard pressed to find anybody who knew what a genetically modified organism was, but you were already doing work. And, um, but I was thinking when you called me, you said, I want to be spontaneous. Can you interview me? I thought, I don't really know how you got into this in the first place. So can you share that with us? Sure. Um, I was in Iowa, where you and I met. Um, I was probably in the same building, the same hall where I took your Yes for Success course in 1981. Um, which you pioneered and brought around the world. But this was uh, 15 years later, there was a genetic engineer who was blowing the whistle on genetic engineering. Very specifically, Monsanto was about to you know, have its genetically engineered Roundup Ready soy and corn growing in Iowa. And this professor, this doctor, knew that the technology that they had used to create the seeds was nowhere near ready to be used in the food supply or the environment. And that 
Everyone who ate it would be subject to a long list of potential side effects. And he knew there was absolutely no way that anyone on earth could genetically engineer anything and keep it free from these unpredictable side effects. It was just prone to side effects, massive collateral damage in the DNA, and that that could create allergens, toxins, and anti-nutrients, and that we were going to be eating this food unlabeled and that almost no one knew about it. But he also said that the environment was in peril because once you release a GMO outdoors, it cross-pollinates and becomes a permanent part of the gene pool passed on generation after generation. So I considered this an A-plus issue, and uh, I realized we needed to have some kind of communication strategy about it to find the truth and to share it with important people who could make decisions to stop it. And I enjoyed marketing communications, strategic communications as my background and skill set. So I said, I think I'll help out for a little bit to see that we can get this, get this handled. And that was 25 years ago. <laughs> wow, you sure helped out a little bit. <laughs> and um, so, first of all, how many uh, countries have you spoken in? I think it's 45. Um, and uh, that's the, the main travel started in 2003 when I published Seeds of Deception. Uh, before that, I was doing local activism uh, in Iowa and some national, but but that was when all of a sudden I I hit the world stage, so to speak, with a very new, specific, strategically chosen angle that turned out to be very much uh, in need, popular, and and leveraged, which was focusing on the health dangers of GMOs and undermining the credibility of Monsanto and the FDA, the two major. Uh, proponents that claimed that they were safe. I had to show that the science and statements by Monsanto were lies. I had to show that the FDA was a captured organization captured by Monsanto, which made it was very easy. But then, so I cleared out the, the mindset from people like, okay, so we can't believe Monsanto, we can't believe the FDA, how bad is it? And then I had scientists tell the story through stories in the book. And that, that hit a nerve, and, and then I built a movement with the Institute for Responsible Technology around the health dangers conveyed to consumers so consumers would make healthier choices to drive a tipping point of consumer rejection, which in fact is underway. So it took a while, but uh, we now have 51% of the U.S. population and 48% of the world's population understanding that GMO foods are unsafe. So the way that the surveys go is that they may be unsafe. We know that they are unsafe, but that concern was sufficient to drive buying trends and, and ingredient selection among major food companies. So the tipping point is underway. So did you say 51% of the U.S. population knows that they're unsafe or thinks they might be unsafe? Thinks they might be unsafe or believes that there could be long-term health dangers. I forget how it was worded, but it's more than we need because it's not a vote, it's influencing purchasing decisions to influence the marketplace, which is working. I can't believe that you wrote Seeds of Deception. That was 2003. 2003. That, that is mind-blowing to me because, I mean, first of all, it feels like it just came out. 
<laughs> and then um, Genetic Roulette came out after that. When did that one come out? 2007. Now, the reason that came out is, see, I had put together all these stories about the health dangers and wove the health dangers into the book. And it was a book that people told me they couldn't put it down or for some that were just so aggravated and outraged by Monsanto, they couldn't read too much of it. So they either read it in little bits so that they can digest it or they couldn't put it down. Um, and people all over the world, I mean, the book was translated in you know, a dozen languages and, and, and marketplaces. And people would contact me all over, oh, I'm going to be testifying here, I'm going to be presenting here, what are the health dangers, and I'd have to compile them and then add to it and add to it. So I realized two things. First of all, I needed something that just gave the health dangers in an easy-to-read format. But I also had given my book, Seeds of Deception, to countless uh, senior political people, heads of state, parliamentarians, senators, uh, members of the ministry, ministers. And they'd always say, would you sign it? Every time they asked me to sign it. And then usually they'd hand it to a staff member and I'm sure they never saw it again. So I realized that the staff may look at it, but the politician is, you know, attention deficit by, by, by trade. And so I had to create something that could, it could be read and understood by the attention deficit politician, but also convincing enough for the staff. And so I wrote a book in two page spreads where the left side was the conclusion and bullet points and a quote from a scientist, and the right side was the details with 1,132 citations. So you can just flip through, and I explained this in the beginning, you just have to read the single sentence in the upper left-hand corner of the page, nothing else. If you want to read more, you can read the main points. If you want to read more, you can read the quote from a scientist and then the details. And yeah. No, I was going to say, that's genetic roulette. That's, that's genetic roulette. And uh, so I had to put it all together, and I made it look like a textbook. Let me see if I have one here. Somewhere I have a genetic roulette. Um, no, it's not here. It's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the closet. I don't want to get up. You no, know, I used to have it right on my day. It, it, I used to have it. Just I'm surprised I don't have it. You know I just moved, so my stuff is still in storage, or else I would be able to pick it right yeah, up. Well, I wanted to show you the two-page spreads. Anyway, um, so... Uh, that one, it's interesting that both filled a very needed gap in the messaging about GMOs that sort of caught fire. Um, one was the story book that became the international best-selling book and still remains the, the leader in that category. And the other one was just the facts, ma'am. You know, like, where is it? What's, what is, what's real? And what can we look at and what can we quote? And where is the source of that? And both were attacked by the biotech industry and etc but that's always that tells you you're doing okay well i love stories so can you share any stories that maybe from the books or maybe from your travels inspirational or the opposite that just jump out at you from the last 25 years well you know it's interesting there's so many that come to mind and i'm just it's like the the entomologist who cornered me in in europe and explained how he was showing that Monsanto's herb, uh, herbicides and GMOs were damaging a particular butterfly and how Monsanto released a press release that distorted his, his information, claiming basically completely non-scientific jabber and put it out so that the world would think that he was completely crazy. And then he tracked it back and it was sent from Monsanto's PR person. And when he confronted her, she said, 
Well, I don't know. I just, it was put on my desk. So I sent it out. <laughs> it was like, um, I remember sometimes what was impressive was how effective it was to visit for, as an American speaking against American policy based on science and uh, with the relevance to that country. So I remember arriving, I went to Taiwan. And uh, by the time I arrived in Taiwan, Seeds of Deception was already a national bestseller, not a GMO bestseller, it was a national bestseller. So it was on the bestseller list of, the, of all the books in the country. And uh, my first meeting was a press conference. Um, and the press conference was me and another man who was a local politi he was a politician in Taiwan. He had been the prime minister of the country and had left, when he finished the job, he started to promote organic food. This is in Taiwan, the guy that went from the prime minister position to talking about organic food. And he and I gave a press conference and he was telling the press about the stories in my book. <laughs> and then, you know, then I had, I then met with the top people in the Senate and or their parliament and had dinner with them and explained what the story was and said, we need to do a hearing. And so they summoned their FDA, they summoned their USDA, they had me there. We did an uh, hours long uh, um, investigation. They asked me all these questions. And at the end, they said, based on your book and your testimony, it's clear we don't have the laws in this country that can address the risks of this technology and we need to update our laws. And then soon after I left, they, they banned ge genetically engineered foods in, in school meals. Um, and then in South Africa. Wait, before you tell us about South Africa, are they still banned in Taiwan and for school foods? I don't know. I haven't heard anything since then about that. One of the issues is my staff has always been very small and following up has been a myth. You know, there's always more to do on my to-do list than I could possibly do. Um, and I was like, talking to my friend Carrie Gillum today and she said, it's really busy. Are you busy today? I said, if I'm not busy, I'm playing hooky. It's like there's always more to do than a day can handle. But um, South Africa had a situation where um, 2005 I went and um, I gave an interview to their version of the Wall Street Journal, their financial paper. And I said, it is crazy that you're feeding genetically engineered feed to animals and then trying to sell the animals to Europe. Did you know that many retailers in Europe have committed to their customers not to sell animal products from animals fed GMOs. You are kicking yourself in the, in the, you know, basically it's a disaster to do that. Three weeks later, the country banned imports of genetically engineered feed for the purpose of evaluating its impact on the European exports. Also in the same trip, I was interviewed by the star, the star or the sun, I forget. Um, and about genetically engineered bovine growth hormone, Monsanto's milk drug. And I explained that it can cause cancer, according to the research that is available and according to some of the own Monsanto's own scientists, um, privately. Uh, and it went, it was, they wrote the article, Cancer in Every Drop, and it was sent to all the tabloids. Every tabloid in the country published it. It had the phone number of the South African Dairy Milk Dairy Dairymen's Association in the in the thing they got flooded with calls. The two major um, uh, Woolworths and the other one, the two major uh, chains, 
made public statements. We don't use bovine growth hormone in any of our milk. It was like it just took the country by storm, a single, a single interview. So it was amazing how like in one fell swoop, you can have all this impact. I remember the, the country government of Poland invited me in, flew me from the United States to give a press conference with the Minister of Environment, where I praised the country's non-GMO policy in food and animal feed. And a week later, though, there was an election and that country was government was voted out and a pro-GMO government took its place. So I realized one of the lessons is that I can't rely on governments for long lasting laws. I have to work to also embed the knowledge of the dangers into popular culture, academia, etc., so that there's more stability. Okay, well, I actually have a question about bovine growth hormones, but um, let's see, should I ask you that or ask you what's going on in the U.S.? Okay, let me just ask you a little sidebar about bovine growth hormones. Sure. You know, because bovine growth hormones are, are injected into the, the cow so that they mature more quickly. Well, it's so that they produce more milk. And they produce more milk. Okay, and then we we drink the milk. I mean, I have seen, it is so clear that children mature much more rapidly than they used to. I mean, I remember my 12-year-old friends, if they got breasts, it was like, ooh, there she's getting breasts. Now nine-year-olds have breasts. And the only thing that I can attribute this to is that they're drinking milk and eating dairy products that have growth hormones. Is that true or it's not? So it's a great question. And there's a not a yes, no answer. So it is possible that the milk from cows treated with genetically engineered bovine growth, growth hormone could affect hormones and early maturation. Um, there's uh, one, one of the hormones that's in the milk is called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, and it has been linked to cancer. So people with high levels of IGF-1, I think, are seven times more likely to get prostate cancer, four times more likely to get breast cancer uh, for premenopausal women, and it's in much higher levels in the milk from treated cows. In fact, I spoke to a former Monsanto scientist who said three of his colleagues were testing the milk from treated cows as Monsanto scientists found how much how much cancer-promoting hormone was in the milk and stopped drinking milk unless it was organic. One of the three scientists bought his own cow. This was this how serious they treated this finding. Now. One of the people that I had the pleasure to work with through the years was Dr. Sam Epstein. And he's no longer alive. He's, he was an expert at some of these environmental in, uh, influences. And I asked him the question about early maturation. He said it's possible, but he also pointed to an insert into uh, beef cows, uh, or into beef cows and bulls, I imagine, uh, which had um, sex hormones produced for either 50 or 100 days nonstop, which could also get into the bodies of the of the youth. There's also estrogen mimickers in plastics. So I think that, and there's also changes in the um, sexual hormones by some of the foods or some of the chemicals that are sprayed on our food. Um, so there's studies showing that frogs, when they get atrazine, they can, you know, become both sexes are switching a male to a female. I mean, really serious shifts. Roundup works with uh, a hormone that 
converts the testosterone to estrogen and can mess up that that mix. So there could be changes in the sex hormones uh, in the population as well, because Roundup is in a lot of food. So I would say there it is. It is extremely likely that is an environmental influence, and that part of that environment influence is the food, and that part of that subset of that food could be the milk. Now, a lot of the dairies these days, however, have committed to not use bovine growth hormone. It'll say no artificial hormones, no RBGH, no RBST, and sometimes you'll see that on yogurt and in cheese. But it's still it's still used in the United States. It's not illegal. Okay, and that's what I was going to ask you. Um, our bovine growth hormones or our GMO, back to GMOs, I remember years ago when I used to, I was actually one of the people who also was aware because I wrote my book, What No Meat, you know, how to cook for your vegetarian kids in 2001. It came out in 2002 and I talked about GMOs in my book. So um, I was right there along with you. But through the years, I would talk about it and I would tell people that the European Union did, uh, and I remember um, Prince Philip was outspoken about GMOs, but I don't hear that much about it anymore. What's the current status of governments being um, responsible in this way? Sure. It was Prince Charles, not Prince Philip. But I oh, I'm sorry, him. Prince Charles. <laughs> Who's Prince um, Philip? Oh, that's the dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, the dad. Um, so what's happening is the many people think that Europe banned GMO. They did ban bovine growth hormone. And okay. I remember one of the statements made was, it appears that we care more about our children's health than the Americans. I mean, they were scathing. In fact, um, anyone that looked at, I mean, I wrote about this in Seeds of Deception and a little bit about it in Genetic Roulette. It was a disaster. It was an approval process that was overseen by former Monsanto people that had become pe people of influence in the FDA. The person in charge of policy at the FDA that ultimately approved it was Michael Taylor, Monsanto's former attorney. Susan Setchin, who had, who had um, worked as a PhD candidate on bovine growth hormone for Monsanto, was in charge of FDA's investigation. Uh, Margaret Miller had done articles for Monsanto and then became the director of the division at the FDA that evaluated her own research. So it was basically, it was, you know, it was Monsanto the, uh, evaluating Monsanto for the sake of getting their product onto the market using rigged research that was unbelievable. So, for example, the FDA defended its approval by saying that, I know I'm not answering your question, but it just reminded me, these are old, these are answers I gave years ago. So um, FDA um, approved, my, approved RBGH, and then claim that it doesn't that there is no extra bovine growth hormone or growth hormone in the milk. Um, there's not a lot, but even if there was, 90, 95% of it is destroyed during digestion, or 90%. Now, it turns out there was a 27% increase in growth hormone in the milk from cows treated with bovine growth hormone, but not by Monsanto's. It was another company that was never put on the market, and they were injected with 2% of the dose that Monsanto's did as part of their study. It was still 27% higher, but what they did is they, they pasteurized the milk in the study to show that the growth hormone broke down, but it didn't, only 19% broke down, not 90%. So they pasteurized the milk at 120 times longer. Didn't do it. They added 
powdered hormones of the milk, like 47 times the amount that was naturally occurring in the milk. They poured powdered hormone into the milk, started up, pasteurized it 120 times longer, and under those conditions, they destroyed 90% of the hormone. Great conditions, and that's what the FDA reported. 90% is destroyed during digestion. I mean, this reminds me of what happened in the, in the Monsanto trial, where in order to try and cover up the fact that when you spray Roundup on the cadaver skin, it too much absorbs to be approved. It would have been rejected. They took human cadaver skin, and they baked it in an oven, and then they froze that baked uh, human skin so it was leather-like, added Roundup to it, hardly any was absorbed, and they reported that absorption level to the EPA, never saying that they had baked and frozen the cadaver skin before they applied it. This is Monsanto science. So back to your question. So in the European Union, they never banned GMOs. Uh, what they did is they were slow in approving the seeds for Europe, and there's only few seeds that are approved for, for planting, and most countries uh, ban that. But they never banned the use of GMOs in the food supply. They never said, oh, we're not going to accept it. But there was labeling. And as soon as labeling came out, it meant that the food companies were going to be exposed if they were using it. Then, in the first chapter of my book, it's all about my dear friend, Dr. Arpan Pustai, who is the world's leading researcher in his field, worked at the most prestigious uh, research, Nutritional Research Institute in, in Scotland, and had done research on GMOs and discovered that they were a problem, was fired and gagged and silenced, and finally his, his uh, gag order was lifted by an order of parliament. And that's the day I, I, that's the day I focus on the first page of the book, Seeds of Deception, it was very dramatic. And more than 700 articles were written about GMOs within a single month after he was able to speak. And it divided society into two warring blocks, according to one, one reviewer. And it spread all over Europe. And the audience, the, the consumers said, we don't want them. So who banned GMOs in Europe? The food companies, the same multinational food companies, Nestle's, uh, Burger King, McDonald's, that continued to sell it to the unaware U.S. consumers were continuing to sell GMOs, were stopped selling GMOs in Europe because they were going to be labeled and because the Europeans knew about it. But that same thing that caused 700 articles in Europe and in England in the single month was described as one of the under, most 10 most underreported events of the year in the United States by Project Censored, U.S. Media Watchdog Group. So the, the tragedy was in the coverage. So I was aware of that because that was in 1999. And that was, so I made it available in my book and I realized what we need to do is to get coverage, is to get the information that, that exposes the health dangers to a sufficient number of people and then we can turn it around. Because that's what happened in Europe. And so then the book got out and it created five movies and 45 countries and traveled endlessly for 13 years straight. and. And it got out. Well, then that brings you to my next question. And that is, if there were one thing that everybody listening could do to support the work right now, you know, 20 years later, um, what would you tell us to do? I mean, we I sign the petitions for labeling, you know, on my computer. What does that do? I'll even give money to um, Institute for Responsible Technology.
Hey everyone, Institute of Responsible Technology, and um, or the Institute for Responsible Technology, and um, so we do that. But if you were to tell us an action we can take to further support your work or to further support the future of our planet, what would you tell us to do? I would say there's two things, not one. But one you already mentioned, and that is support us. Because you said everyone listening. If we had everyone who was listening contribute even $5 a month, and I say per month. Reason I say per month is if you contribute a certain amount that gets auto-deducted every month and you're comfortable being on our team, then we know it's coming. And by knowing it's coming, we can then hire that person, create that film, you know, spend the money to visit Washington and do our work there. It makes it budgetable. So I would love it for people, everyone listening, to go to responsibletechnology.org and make a donation on a monthly recurring basis. That way we are secure knowing what we can spend. Wait, and before you go any further, I want to say I'm going to commit right now to do that. And I'm going to commit to $25 a month because what do we spend $25 on? I mean, you know, I was going to say pizza and a beer. I don't eat either of them, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I do eat gluten-free pizza with tea, with rice cheese, cheese. But anyway, that's well, another. I, I accept your $25 is such a generous donation. And I will tell you, and I'll hold that $25 as in honor of my 25th year as an activist. 25 yeah, years. So, I wish I would have said, and I'm doing it because of your 20. I knew you thought that, Deb. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I knew you thought that. But in, and I think about, you know, that that um, organization called Acorn, where they take out, you know, a certain amount every month. I've been doing Acorn since they started. I don't notice that they take out $50 a month. How would I ever notice that there's 50 but yet i have this account growing same thing would i miss 25 dollars a month so i will really encourage everybody responsibletechnology.org let's give jeffrey and by the way we did not talk about this so this is coming up spontaneously really <laughs> truly but let's give jeffrey an anniversary present his 100th podcast and his 25th years of activism for us for our future 25 dollars a month i mean we won't even miss it and it'll it could do tremendous work it would enable jeffrey to do the kind of work that we need for the future of our planet so let's just go for it let's just make the pledge and do it i feel like i'm on one of those pledge-a-thons you know yes <laughs> <PBS>, right <laughs> i'm old enough to remember the jerry lewis telethon jerry lewis telethon <laughs> so uh, so i interrupted you what was the second thing we can do first of all thank you thank you so much you're amazing uh, you've been a supporter deep supporter as a friend and thank you now on behalf of the institute we're going to spend your money wisely for you <laughs> i know uh, so the other thing is we're now looking to protect the global microbiome now those of us those of us who've been we're talking together for a while know what that is but just briefly it's the microbial world the viral world the fungus, it's after even algae, and that these little guys are under grave attack from GMO microbes. 
Microbes, as we know from, we didn't need a pandemic to know that microbes travel around the world and mutate. They also do swap meets. So if you introduce a genetic element that was never part of the billions of years of evolution, that didn't co-evolve with humans and other ecosystems, then you can disrupt, damage, and even collapse ecosystems by adding a single um, microbe. And right now you can gene edit microbes for the price of dinner if you have an eye. You can buy a do-it-yourself kit for $169 and do several of them. For, for $1,000, you can have enough materials so that you can name your own microbe and send it out into the environment, like what happened in 1859 in Australia when someone let out 24 rabbits so that settlers would feel more at home to be able to hunt rabbits. Well, rabbits multiply like rabbits, and by the 1920s, there was over 10 billion. With the microbes traveling, 10 billion is nothing. It'll be multiple trillions of trillions and trillions of microbes. If it happens to have certain characteristics, it can dominate and displace, disrupt, and collapse ecosystems, including the microbiome inside us. So this is an existential threat on our film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, which is at Protect Nature Now. We have a 16-minute film. It's my most recent and my shortest. And it has a microbe that was almost released that could have theoretically ended terrestrial plant life, another one that could have changed weather patterns, another one that could have decimated the human population. Those are in the 16-minute film. And what we want people to do is to go to protectnaturenow.com, the advocacy platform, to take action, and then enter your, your contact information, and all of your elected officials show up. All of your media in your area show up. And with a single click or more, if you want to customize the message, you can get information out to your elected officials, and we have to thousands of them, not just in the US, but also Canada, Australia, EU, and UK. So we have it set up right now, today, it's on the, it's one of the two goals of our campaign to stop the, the gain of function research of potentially pandemic pathogens. In other words, don't create path pathogens in laboratories, which if they escaped could create new and even more dangerous global pandemics. It should be logical, especially in the face of hundreds of lab accidents in the last few years. It should be obvious. It's not. We need to put it into law. And no outdoor release of any GMO microbes anywhere on the earth. We need to, we need to use those dollars that are contributed on a monthly basis to open up offices around the world, to strengthen our more than 60 allies around the world, to produce educational materials around the world, to send Mr. Smith to Washington to talk to people, and to get the information out so we can pass the laws to lock down GMO microbes. And there's already interest and support by members of Congress at this moment. And we have, we are a moving machine here. We are, we have the momentum, we need more. So go to protectnaturenow.com. If you haven't seen the movie, you can start there. So you can feel really good about jumping on that advocacy platform and do that today. Okay, and you said, you said it three times, but you said it uh, fast. So I'm going to say it slow protectnaturenow.com or org? Huh. protectnaturenow.com. And then the name of the film is Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle. It's only 16 minutes. Watch it. It is, it's kind of chilling, I have to say. It's, and how close we came, how Jeez. close we came. To two weeks away. You'll see. I don't, it won't be a plot spoiler, but we were two weeks away from it can't be called a catastrophe. It has to be called a cataclysm. Now, there's a bunch of ifs there, but still. All right, yeah. we'll leave it there. 
just go ahead and watch it. And then, and there are a lot of, um, I'd say mostly young people now who are, they want to have a cause. They want to, you know, the Greta Thurmans of the world, they want to save this planet from becoming extinct. And you would say that is also the advice to them. That's a place to start. Oh, yeah. The thing is this. This is clearly an existential threat. I mean, you look at the film and it's like, yeah, that was an existential threat. That one microbe was an existential threat. The other one that released the pathogen could have been, you know, decimated the human population with a 52% uh, fatality rate. Um, yes, and it can alter our world forever. The microbiome in the soil is the supporting element for food production. The microbiome in the body determines our health in an incredibly efficient and miraculous manner. We've outsourced 90% of our daily functions to the microbiome. We're higher organisms because we rely not on our own 22,000 genes, Earthworms have more, but in the 3.5 million genes of the microbiome whose intelligence we access every day. And that evolved with us. Somehow, over the millions of years of evolution, there's a certain microbe that knows, oh, you're in the second trimester. We're moving into the birth canal. Why? Because we digest milk. And so we're going to inoculate your baby so that when your baby is born, you can breastfeed and your baby can digest the milk. But that's not all. There's another set of microbes that move into the breast to feed the microbiome even more. But that's not all. The structure of the milk, some of it is indigestible by the infant. Is that a mistake from nature? No. It survives the digestion in the stomach. It survives digestion in the small intestine so it can get to what it wants to feed, the microbiome in the large intestine. The, the breast milk is designed to help feed the microbiome of the infant because if it's healthy, it structures good health for the rest of that child's life and future generations, perhaps, if they can pass it on to their future generations. So it's an incredibly intelligent Jedi, micro Jedi army that works on our behalf every day and we can disrupt the whole thing by a science experiment, by a high school science experiment, by... But we don't have to think about one because if we don't stop it, there may be millions of GMO microbes released into the environment, unrecallable, untrackable, and they can share their genetic information that's new and odd and mysterious with who knows, any one of the trillion species in the microbiome with unpredictable consequences. And it's so fundamental to health it's so fundamental to the environment. And I, I'll tell you something. After 25 years, Deborah, of focusing on the food, when I saw the new GMOs and how cheap and easy it was to create gene editing, I thought, oh, we're going to replace nature if we don't stop this. Because, you know, food choices will protect the food supply, but it won't protect butterflies and bees and trees and grass. And then I realized the microbiome is the most dangerous. Because if you genetically engineer a human, which some people want to do, it won't spread out until many, 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 many generations. But you genetically engineer a microbe, and it can go around the world in, in weeks. So this is why we have an urgent existential need. And I do love your appeal to the youth who want a cause, because this is so winnable right now. If we wait 25 years after a million 
microbes have been released by various high school classes and academia and companies. I don't know what we'd be facing then. And we won't, we'll have a completely distorted um, ecosystem set up if they still exist. So yeah, it has to happen right, right away. Well, thank you for that. And um, again, those people also, they can go to protectnaturenow.com, um, watch the film. I'm sure there's a form that says contact um, if you want to contact Jeffrey or his staff and, and um, you know, get on board to uh, be an advocate for this really, really urgent cause. Now, the last thing I want to ask you, I, I'm not sure how much time we have, so I'm saying last thing, but maybe we have more. <laughs> but I'll We can wrap up when it feels like, you know, it's like how I used to put out my newsletter, semi-whenever-ly. wondering <laughs> <laughs> where it was. I get it, so it must not be whenever-ly right now. But, okay, so the reason why I was going to say it's the last question is because one of the reasons I adore you and I love being with you is when I am freaked out and bummed out about the uh, direction of our world and the corrupt government and the corrupt politicians and the corrupt biotech companies and, and I just feel despondent you always manage to find something positive. You're like, the after we share all this, yet on the other hand, you're the most optimistic person I know. Sometimes, I remember we were standing on a porch I, uh, in San Rafael, and I was like in tears, and you're, you're saying, no, no, don't worry, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. Do you still think it's going to be fine? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, first of all, um, I love to do strategic planning to fix things. I love to fix things. And I love to think huge. And my slogan is think huge, thinking big is so last century. So when I looked and I tried to figure out what is the, what is the most leveraged piece we can do to have the biggest impact. So for example, I'm just gonna share my thinking. So there's, there's this side, but there's a little more to, to optimism as well. So when I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be an activist and try and stop GMOs. I can, you know, fight them in court. Well, that could be millions of dollars and we could lose. I, I'll try and get new laws passed. Well, that could be millions of dollars and we could lose. I'll try and do research. I, I'm not a scientist and can't afford the millions of dollars to do research. But the leverage is let's get people to avoid GMOs. In the food supply, we don't need 51%. 5%, that was the thing I, I got out. 5% of the U.S. population seeking non-GMO would make it so obviously profitable for a company to switch to non-GMO ingredients so they wouldn't lose market share to their competing, competing product on the same shelf that says non-GMO. And so how do you get 5%? Mo I mean, it's easy. Go to the most receptive demographics. Go to the parents of young kids. Go to those that are sick, probably from GMOs or those that treat them. Go to the religious people that think GMO means God move over. These people are pre-wired with recept receptor cells ready to accept the information. So you give people what they want. They choose healthier choices. They, they feel better. They get better. They tell their friends and we win. And that's what happened. So it was easy. Now I'm like, how do I get Protect Nature now? to stop GMO microbes from around. How do I get, how do I build a new movement quickly and not wait 25 years? So I'm thinking, okay, 
there are other movements out there. For example, there's the climate change movement. Huge. Everyone knows about climate change. One way of, of preventing or reversing climate change is through drawing down the carbon into the soil, which is part of regenerative agriculture. It's not, regenerative agriculture is huge. Countries are adopting it. What does regenerative agriculture rely on? The microbes. The microbes do the heavy lifting. If you mess that ecosystem up, you can just forget about regenerative agriculture and forget about sequestering carbon. So there's already organizations out there that do regenerative agriculture and climate change. Let's reach them. So the, the leverage piece is called up my friend Andre Liu, who's the head of Regeneration International. I said, watch the film. He calls me back and says, oh my God, this is perfect. This fits hand in glove with regenerative agriculture. This is exactly what we need. We'll support you. We've got 340 organizations in 170 countries. He and I are going to do a webinar with others next uh, in September. And we want to get, you know, so we're looking for existing networks so that we can just do a little bit and it goes out to everyone. So as long as I'm holding those real practical solutions to fix things in a huge way, then I have a plan. So having a plan, I never feel helpless. I'm just driving people to what I think is the most leveraged action. So I'm glad you asked that question earlier about what action. So there's another piece, and that is that it's a personal philosophy of mine. Also, I, I meditate, practice transcendental meditation. This is my, I learned today, the day we're doing this interview, uh, 1975. So this is also an anniversary of mine. And that cleared stress and, and, and opened my mind. And so there was a natural tendency for me to not be worried and anxious, uh, just physiologically. And I know that I know the research there too. And it's, very compelling and real. And then there's also the choice as a leader. And I, I, I have a speaker training program. We had about 1,500 people take a GMO speaker training program uh, through the Institute. And I explained this there. I said, we don't need to be doom and gloom. We don't need to sound melodramatic. We're telling a mother in our data that what she fed her kids or what she ate during pregnancy may have caused a problem with her child and that's more melodramatic than you 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 can think of we need to be the hopeful beacon they need to say oh there's jeffrey smith on stage he knows more about the dangers of gmos than i'll ever know and he's still smiling and he's still optimistic, which I am. And I make sure they know that. Because oftentimes when people hear information that's threatening, they can become disempowered. And if you become disempowered, you're not part of the solution, part of the problem. And to me, I look at that in a more global context. I think the education system, from what I understand and have confirmed, the U.S. was designed from the Prussian system, which was designed to create good soldiers, and it's also designed to create good workers, not good managers or generals, but the soldiers, the people that follow. How do they do that? In part by the disempowerment, follow me, repeat after me, give your power to the teacher concept. Now, that turns out to create a mindset in society 
that is the foundation for why we have GMOs. It is, oh, it's someone else's responsibility. I'm sure they'll do a good job. I'll look over here. It's that it's someone else's responsibility. I don't need to pay, pay attention. I've gone to so many governments and talked to government regulators and they say, we don't need to review GMOs. Your FDA reviewed it and approved it. They're shocked when I say, you know, the FDA doesn't review and approve it. They allow the companies like Monsanto to determine if the foods are safe. The FDA has only a voluntary consultation process. And at the end of the day, the letter that Monsanto gets says, this is to remind you that it's your determination. It is your responsibility to determine if your foods are safe, not the FDA. And you have determined that your foods are safe. No further questions. And that is the abdication from the federal government. And then if you look at Monsanto, and I talked to a former Monsanto scientist, and they said when they found that there was damage to rats when the rats ate GMO corn, instead of withdrawing the corn, they rewrote the study to hide the effects. So no one is guarding us. No one is protecting the hen house except the fox. And this concept that someone else will take care of it needs the antidote in order for us to rid GMOs. And they, so what I did is I said, okay, let's do it for personal health. Let's focus on we need to take over and choose what we want for our health and not, and not let Monsanto and its enforcement wing in Washington tell us what food is. We call that food-shaped objects, not real food. It's GMOs, it's sprayed with Roundup, FSOs, food-shaped objects, not what we want to feed our kids, not what we want to eat. So we need to take that power back, which is easier. Now we have to tell the government, not on our watch, you can't pollute the genome of the microbiome. We need to take over the mindset that it's our responsibility. So some people listening may go, yeah, um, someone else will do it. Someone else will take care of it. And that's okay. Not everyone is called to do this, but, but even if you don't do the action, and I hope you do, realize that it is in fact the responsibility of this generation this generation, we've come to an inevitable time in human history where we can redirect the streams of evolution for all time, easily and cheaply. For the price of dinner, we have our microbe version of rabbits that will can change the course and nature of nature. With this new technology comes a new responsibility. We can hold it as a burden or we can hold it as a honor. In the past, no human could damage all living beings and all future generations like we can now. So this means we have an opportunity to protect all living beings and all future generations. Wow, an opportunity to protect all living beings and all future generations. In fact, it is interesting if we just look at it from a different angle and realize, oh, we are at risk of an existential crisis and the solution is an up-leveling of our awareness as humanity so we become stewards of nature. Instead of battling it, overcoming it, manipulating it for our means at the molecular level, we need to protect it. And we need to do it in this generation. It's like at the very moment that the threat is so real, where right now as we're speaking, there's robots creating new gene uh, sequences driven by artificial intelligence in hundreds of places in arrays in big factories. And if they happen to escape, that's all new organisms that can then swap and change and change. 
we have now arrived at the absolute requirement as a species, as a planet, forcing us to make choices. At the same time, looking at it from another angle, the pandemic. The pandemic has a silver lining in this regard. Everyone is aware about microbes now. Everyone is aware how microbes travel. People want to do something to protect future generations from pandemics. So we have end of gain of function of potentially pandemic pathogens as meeting an unmet need. And if you're really implementing the lessons of the pandemic and you're understanding the role of microbes and how they affect not only in the body, but in an environment, you need to also not release any GMO microbes. It's the same package to the most receptive humanity ever. Never before have we had this level of receptivity for this message at a time when it's absolutely essential and that it's demanding stepping up to a higher relationship with nature, a new way of defining ourselves and defining humanity. So we can just take that vision and be leaders there. Take that vision out to the world and say, yes, it is our responsibility and I'm going to do something about it. And at Protect Nature Now, it can take two and a half minutes and you're done. And then we'll let you know next month where to spend your two and a half minutes or $25. And we don't have to tell you next month because it's going to be automatic. We're going to make it as simple as possible. But we asked you to participate as a team member in this human endeavor. Can I give you an amen? <laughs> And, um, and the one other thing I was thinking is that not only those of you who are listening to this, but also pass this interview on to your friends, if you could send them the link to this, because I think, Jeffrey, you've explained so many things um, so clearly, things that many people had no idea about. And also, as soon as they now do have the idea about it, they definitely will want to know what they can do and how they can participate. And you just made it so simple. Donate at responsibletechnology.org and um, go to Protect Nature Now, watch the 16-minute film. And when you sign up there, you'll continue to get uh, emails. I know I get them about what you can do uh, on a regular basis. So instead of just complaining with your friends about Oh my goodness, all the people who are drinking milk with bovine growth hormones, oh my gosh, our government, we can do something about it. One more website, and that is livehealthybewell.com. You can access this podcast, Secret Ingredients, a movie to convince everyone to go organic, uh, the 90-day lifestyle upgrade to help you go organic, healing from GMOs and Roundup to help detox, rebuild, and repair the body before you went organic. And um, so there's there's a you know, over 25 years, you sort of develop a portfolio, and that's only like a handful of what we've got. Yeah. Deborah, I, am, I just have this thought today because, you know, our, our podcast engineer said, do you know this is your 100th podcast? Do you want to do something special? And so I said, yeah, yeah, tomorrow I'll, I'll, get, I'll do something special. I had no idea what I was going to do. And so um, I, I set up the computer, and I was like, oh, it's not working. Uh, and then I had, oh. Call Deborah. Let's do this as a as a dialogue. And thank you so much.
Well, thank you so much. You have no idea how honored I am. The 100th podcast, the 25th anniversary of um, your activism, your meditation anniversary. What an auspicious day. And really and truly, as I started out at the beginning um, saying, I just feel so proud when your name comes up in conversations and I say, well, he's been my friend for 40 years. Remember, we went to that health food restaurant um, in Wheeling, Illinois, and or was it Wheaton? Wheaton, Wheeling, I get the two mixed up. And um, I said, oh, yeah, you might know my friend uh, Jeffrey Smith. And it was like, it was kind of like I was there with Elvis, you know. <laughs> I thought the girl was going to faint when I said that it was you. <laughs> so I have to tell you, you are like the Elvis of, of the, um, the world of uh, protecting us from um, the devastation that could happen if it is, wasn't for good people like you caring about us. So thank, thank you Deborah. so much. Thank you, Deborah. And to everyone, safe eating. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.